that's the plan. Uh, so good to be able to uh, share this weekend with you. It's been a busy time for us, so <clears throat> uh, things are not quite together in the way that perhaps we wanted them to be, but uh, we're just happy to be here for this important celebration. Sunday is going to be a day of great rejoicing because of what we know of Jesus' triumph over death. And today, in a way, is such a day as well. It's a day of rejoicing. But it's also a very somber day in many ways as we consider uh, the significance of what uh, Jesus has done for us on the cross, the cost of our forgiveness and our salvation. Uh, The incarnation of Christ... Him becoming flesh, which we celebrated Christmas, is truly <clears throat> awe-inspiring. But the fact that this one who came from heaven ended up becoming the sacrifice for our sin by dying on a Roman cross so many years ago is the most amazing expression of love that the world has ever seen. So it's right that we should take time to think about the wonder of what happened in the events leading up to his crucifixion. In the Christian calendar, as you know, the time leading up to Christ's crucifixion is uh, sometimes uh, spoken of as Lent. It begins with Ash Wednesday, which many of us celebrated together on February 22nd of this year. The 40 days of Lent is a time to think about Christ's journey to the cross, his suffering and death, but it's not a time to suffer for Christ for the sake of our salvation. Rather, it's a time to think about the reality of our own sin. Lent is a time to think about Jesus suffering for the sake of our salvation, and it, in fact, it's a time to practice self-denial for the sake of fulfilling Christ's great purposes, especially in the matter of making the gospel known to the world. It's notable that all four gospels elaborate so extensively on the reality of the Easter story. In fact, it's the largest section of each of the gospels most critical events of the week begin with Jesus keeping the Passover with his disciples and the betrayal of Judas. Later that night, we read of Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane as he wrestles alone with the prospect of all that is involved in his death, while his three disciples who are with him in the Garden are oblivious and distracted by their own weakness. It's a lot to think about there in regard to our own tendency. And shortly after, Judas meets Jesus in the garden with a band of Jewish thugs sent by their religious leaders armed with swords and clubs. He doesn't fight their arrest, though Peter slashes an ear, which Jesus then heals. And the next day, they take him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where he is grilled by the Sanhedrin. 
that, le- that body of, of leaders among the Jews, consisting of about 70 men. This is also the time of Peter's denial that he even knew who Jesus was. And as I understand it, all of this happened on Thursday night of Passover week. The Sanhedrin can't even agree on their false accusations of, of all of which remain unanswered by Jesus. Finally, the high priest asks him, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? To which Jesus simply replies, I am. You say that, that I am. So they accuse him of blasphemy, saying he is worthy of death. Even some of that auspicious group, those members of the Sanhedrin, it seems, uh, ridicule him in various ways, punch him and so on, while telling him to prophesy. Then the guards take him and beat him before him in a kind of prison beneath the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. I remember we visited um, Israel almost 30 years ago now, and I remember seeing that place where below Caiaphas' home, there was this prison in which they put Jesus, just a very small little place. And here, this morning, we come to the passage that was read earlier, early Friday morning, according to uh, Mark 15, 1, the chief priests and the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. They decided that he should be crucified. And since they don't have the right to kill him themselves, they take him over to Pilate, the Roman governor. Right off, Pilate asks him if he is the king of the Jews, to which he replies that he is, but that's all that Jesus says, despite many other accusations. So he says that he is the king of the Jews before Caiaphas, but he also before Pilate. Pilate knows that Jesus is not worthy of death, of the death penalty. So it seems he's kind of sarcastic in, in suggesting the release of a prisoner in the place of Jesus, an annual event at Passover time, that they would release a prisoner. But they want the rebel leader Barabbas released instead of Jesus. They make it very clear that they will be satisfied by nothing less than Jesus' crucifixion. And when Pilate asks them why, what crime has he done, they just yell, crucify him, crucify him. So Jesus is led to crucifixion while Barabbas, the murderer, goes free. Isn't that a picture of the significance of Jesus' death if there ever was one? Barabbas, the prisoner, is free and Jesus is led to crucifixion. Luke's gospel mentions the fact that the trial with Pilate also involved Herod, the Galilean governor, who was in Jerusalem at that particular time as well. And here again, Jesus is mocked and ridiculed, but he gives no answer to his accusers. Separately, Pilate and Herod conclude that Jesus is not guilty of anything that would make him worthy of death. They actually became friends that day, 
because they had been enemies before this. Isn't it interesting in the context of Jesus' death that these are reconciled to one another? Uh, It's a strange picture indeed. So many times people are reconciled in the context of the evil things that they do. But Pilate, as you know, instead of rendering true justice, makes a very political decision and he releases Barabbas, has Jesus flogged, and then hands him over to the soldiers for him to be crucified. And amid the mocking and physical torture of various kinds, they lead him to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. We also visited that place just outside of Jerusalem, and indeed it does look like that even to this day. I'm sure some of you have had the opportunity to be there and see these things. By this name, Golgotha, it truly is the place of death. In this case, the worst possible means of all deaths, crucifixion on a cross. They nail his wrists and his feet, and then erect this whole thing, dropping it into a hole in the ground. <clears throat> Consider the agony of that moment for Jesus. They do the same with the two rebels who are placed on either side with Jesus in the midst. Passers-by mock him with insults and jeers about saving himself and coming down from the cross. Everyone, it seems, has forsaken him and left him, the Son of God, to suffer. There's so much more that we could talk about concerning Jesus' suffering, his humility, In this event, the crown of thorns, the beatings, the mocking. But we have to ask the question, why, what merit is there in even looking at these graphic details as they're presented to us in Scripture? After all, what's different in this from thousands of other stories of human torture? Well, as I bring the message to a Conclusion, ultimately, let me offer a few reasons as to why the crucifixion of Jesus was the worst death the world has ever known, so central to the gospel accounts and to all of our lives. Because in the first place, a perfect son of God, a perfect human being, none other than the very son of God, experienced the worst of human humiliation, and crucifixion upon a Roman cross, the kind of death reserved for the worst of human criminals. And it's really incredible when you think about it. If anything was absolute nonsense from a human perspective, it would be this. It was the supreme injustice and so representative of human sin. Yet God not only allowed it, but clearly appears to have question is why? Because it was necessary by his death to become the sacrificial lamb to take away the sin of the world. Many years earlier, the children of Israel, as you recall, were enslaved by the Egyptians. and God heard their cry and raised up Moses and Aaron to bring about their deliverance. You may recall that the Pharaoh at the time was unwilling to to let the Israelites go until God sent the death angel to Egypt to kill the eldest 
the eldest son in each family, and even the eldest, uh, even the even cattle were killed during that time. But to escape the same fate as the Egyptians, the children of Israel were instructed to kill a perfect lamb to eat it, and then to place the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their homes. That night, the death angel came and inflicted heavy losses on the Egyptians. But when the angel came to the homes of the Israelites and saw the blood on the doorposts and, and uh, above the, the, uh, the door, on the sill and so on, uh, the angel passed over those homes. And so it was that Jesus, as the perfect Lamb of God, was slain so that his blood might be applied to our lives and death would pass over us as well. The crucifixion not only makes sense if it, it, it not only makes sense if it means the salvation from being separated forever from the love of God who made us, of being eternally left to exist in a place called hell. The other reason <clears throat> There are other reasons that could pos- uh, that we could mention that ex- expose the sinless Son of God to such abuse, and we would not focus on this were it not for the fact that He was giving God was giving His utmost for humanity's eternal salvation. How else can we possibly explain explain the terrible judgment that came upon Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? when they were driven from it? How else can we explain the destruction of the world by the flood of the, in the time of Noah, apart from God's need for absolute justice against humanity? How else can we explain the judgment and violence that came upon the Canaanites by the hand of Israel when they marched into the promised land, apart from the awful judgment, justice of God's holiness? How else can we appreciate the judgment that fell upon Israel itself in the destruction of Jerusalem, so graphically described in the book of Lamentations? Because they had forsaken their covenant, their covenant with their God and worshipped other gods. I ask you, how else can we possibly come to terms with the existence of so much suffering in the world of wars and earthquakes and volcanoes and famine and genocide not to mention all the terrible abuse that is heaped upon children and the vulnerable of our world. How can we understand all of this apart from the terrible existence of human sin and satanic evil and of Jesus' death for that reason? Words of Tim Keller, you are more sinful than you will ever know. You are also more loved than you will ever cross makes no sense whatsoever unless somehow it was possible in that act of God for his son to take upon himself all the sin and evil of all time so that we mortals with eternal living souls could be saved from, a sin, from sin's terrible judgment and power. It's for this reason that the cross is central in the history of the world and that Golgotha is in the middle of the world's geography. It is for this reason that the empty cross is a church's icon 
not as a subject of worship in itself, but as a symbol of what the history of humanity is really all about. And a fitting symbol, I say to you, of what the church really is all about. That's why this cross is at the center. Nothing covers it because it is absolutely central to all that happens in the life of the church. For it is there on that cross that all of the justice of God and all of his great selfless love came together for you and for me. As Paul writes about it in Romans 3.25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be the just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The main point on a day like this is that the suffering and death of Jesus Christ on the cross was not only the greatest expression of God's love and mercy that the world has ever seen, but that it was also an absolute necessity for justice and for our salvation. In the New Testament, there are some 57 occurrences of the word saved. It seems to me that if the church is going to be the church that God wants it to be, it is absolutely essential that as people grasp the huge significance of what happened there at the cross in terms of the reality of sin and humanity's great need for salvation. The ugliness of Golgotha speaks of the reality and awfulness of sin. And this understanding, I believe, is important to our own personal salvation as well. Certainly, biblically, it seems obvious that not everyone is going to be saved. Personal salvation is clearly dependent upon faith. It's not automatic. Just as it was true for Abraham in the Old Testament, so it must be true for us that being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So for personal salvation to be real, it's important to believe in and to confess that Jesus is a Christ and that he died and rose again for our sins. And I'm wondering this morning whether you've come to that place in your own life. You know, we've got so many things going on in our lives. There's so many ideas. There's so much confusion. I talked with a neighbor friend of mine the other day, and he's, he says, I'm an agnostic. And we talked about, about this, this great plan of God in Christ. And I said to him, well, how do you explain everything apart from these sorts of, this, this story? <clears throat> There is no explanation. This is, this is the only way that we can make sense out of this crazy world in which we live. It's all about Jesus and what he's done for us. But in addition to salvation, <clears throat> um, is this, knowledge also, this knowledge of Christ is also essential to our holiness as individual Christians. Or as we say, salvation from the power of sin, our sanctification. I don't know about you, but I think we all know what it is to struggle with the power of sin in one form or another, even after we become believers. Sexual sin, lust for power, the lust for things that will pass away. You know, I came to believe in Jesus when I was very young, But then I also came to know what it is to struggle with sin's power in various forms in my life. 
I knew I know what that's all about. I've been there. <clears throat> and I still struggle sometimes. But I come to discover that victory over sin's power comes by identifying myself by faith with Jesus in his death and resurrection. I discover that the very power of Christ is released in my life when by faith I allow myself to be crucified with Christ. When I submit myself completely and totally to him. This is God's answer to the myriad of self-help remedies out there on how to say no to a stubborn habit. Paul writes about it in this way in Romans 6, 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin. As I say, it's not uncommon for those who have come to faith to struggle with sin's power in its various forms. Sometimes this experience is deep and long-lasting, affecting many other aspects of our lives. And it's one of the great tragedies in the church, I believe, today, that so many continue to struggle with addictions of one kind or another, whether they be of... uh, media type, for example, or money, or uh, the things that we eat, or uh, just so many different things, you know, can take over our lives. They become obsessions, and, and we can't seem to go on without having our fix, right? Is there an answer to this? Yes, the answer is in the cross of Christ and in his resurrection. He wants to free us from these things, to make us people who are not only saved from sin, but saved to live victorious over sin as well. So in the cross, we experience salvation from God's terrible judgment of sin, as as well as from its awful power. But the cross also relates to something we are saved for. That it is a life of gracious blessing now and a life of eternal bliss in the presence of God at the end of this life. So the cross is not only a place of protection and mercy from God's awful judgment upon sin, but it's also a place of incredible blessing. Consider these words from Ephesians 1, verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood. Ephesians 1, 3. In him we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. He did this, it says in Ephesians 2, 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incredible riches of his grace. No wonder it was this message of the cross that became so central to the preaching and ministry of the apostles. For example, consider Peter's great sermon in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. It was this preaching of Jesus' death and resurrection that was central to that sermon. And it was the climax of Stephen's message in Acts 7 before he himself was stoned by his Jewish listeners. And it's also the message that Paul preached on his missionary uh, ministry, his his, uh, travels. In his first letter to the Corinthian Christians, Paul wrote... Uh, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, 
But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And then he writes further in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Golgotha. In many ways, it is not an attractive word. Yet at the same time, it's one of the most precious words that we could ever know. For when we hear that word, it reminds us that what happened there at the cross in Jerusalem is central to what life and the world is really all about. For it was there at that awful place called Golgotha, that all the glory of heaven met all the evil of sin and and Satan so that we might experience eternal salvation. And I hope that we will always remember that it was there at Golgotha that Jesus suffered in order that we might be free from the awful power of sin in our lives. And it was there at Golgotha that all the glories of heaven became accessible to anyone who believes. Golgotha is what the good news of the scriptures is really all about. This is the truth that is central to the existence and ministry of the church worldwide worldwide and of a church like this. It is the power of this message that transforms people's lives in communities like Tabor again and again for the glory of God. Have you come to believe this gospel? Have you come to experience the freedom of knowing that your sin has been taken care of through Christ and what he did at the cross? Have you allowed the cross to become the power of God for victory over sin as it occurs in your life? Are you glorying in the blessings that God has promised through the cross? Let's pray. Father, this morning we are so amazed and impressed with the wonder of the cross. We thank you for 